Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Since you're here anyway, you're here and you're conscious, you know you're here, what will you do? You can close down and shut down and hide and be afraid, or you can take risks and open up and taste life as much as possible. And I'm voting for the latter when I'm working with my clients. And if you think about parts of what existentialism is about, it's not just exist, it's exist authentically. Be here fully and authentically, making choices that are about meaning. And I can't think of a more rich and colorful way to engage in life than from that space. That was Dr. Robin Walzer on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Robin Walzer, who's back on the show again. She's made multiple visits to our show. She's talking about a chapter from her book, The Heart of Act, Developing a Flexible, Process-Based, and Client-Centered Practice Using Act. And Robin has a chapter in that book about meaning and purpose and existentialism and sort of exploring existence, which I, I found to be a wonderful chapter. So I was really happy to have the chance to talk with her about it in this interview. Yeah, it's a topic that I think we often tread lightly in as therapists. And she gives us the courage to actually go there. And particularly right now, existentialism is up for a lot of a lot of people in terms of thinking about their own mortality, what is the meaning of their lives? What is the meaning and purpose of all of this? And what role am I playing? And I love what Robin had to say in this episode, especially around this idea of waiting, that a lot of times we spend a lot of our lives waiting for some future thing to happen. And maybe we're even doing that right now, waiting for X, Y, and Z to be over but we lose out when, when we're waiting as opposed to really harnessing the now and, and diving into what can we do to make our lives more meaningful right here, right now. You know, we talked on the podcast in the past about post-traumatic growth. We had an episode a lot, quite a while back about it. And I think one of the things that can really come out of adversity and it takes some effort though, sometimes though, is this greater sense of meaning and engagement with something 
that matters. And I think that that's something that has been coming up for me a lot right now is around, you know, okay, I'm having this experience. It's hard. And how can I find meaning in my daily life? But also how can I, what does this tell me about what's important to me? And how can I create meaning even in the middle of this difficult situation? There's a perspective shift, I think, that can happen. What should it take for you? Well, I think that, you know, speaking of existentialism, it just, it's been this reminder that life is short. And some of the things that I stress out about all the time are actually not really that important in the big scheme of things. Um, But it's connecting me with, you know, I'm really missing and worried about my parents. Diane, I know we talked about that you, you're kind of feeling that too. I think just recognizing the importance of my family and and they're just right here with me, my clients and just kind of supporting the mental health. This is just such a tough time for people. And it's really reminded me of the importance of the work that we're doing as I see stories about just people who are really suffering right now. How about for you, Diana? Yeah, I, I think it's also for me, maybe opening up some spaces that I didn't know that I had yearnings around or longings around because I was so busy and they were so filled in with maybe sort of like junk life, <laughs> life that wasn't so meaningful that just filled in its way to make me super busy. And so when everything got stripped down to the basics of just us and our dog and our kids and figuring out our family life and safety and um, caring for each other and caring for our planet, the, some things really rose to the surface for us. And I also think of this time as um, sort of like a get out of jail free card to make shifts in your life that you want to make that maybe, at least for me, that I didn't have the courage to make. And I, I really appreciate that. There's something about the limited resources that in some ways opens us up yeah. to new opportunities. Yeah. yeah. And and maybe that's our hope for folks is that you can take a look at your own life and what's meaningful and what matters and think if there's a perspective shift happening here. It makes me think of this exercise that I'll often do with clients and you and Robin talk about um, the funeral exercise from ACT. There's another exercise called A Year to Live. And it's a writing exercise where people write about if they had a year to live, what would they do? And then the next prompt is if you had a month to live, and the next prompt is if you had a week, and then a day, and then a minute. And what happens naturally is you get closer and closer and closer in on that life is limited and time is limited, all of a sudden, the most important things start to show up for people. They're like, oh, I'd call this person, or I just put my hand on my heart and breathe. And I think that's been part of what we're experiencing right now is coming up right against that. Like, what is really, what really matters here? And what was all the fluff? <laughs> it's a values exercise. It really is. And I think being, Robin writes in her chapter about how being in touch with some of these really existential kinds of questions, just noticing that life is short and that we're going to die really puts us in touch with our values. And I think reading her chapter and hearing her talk in this way, just helps me bring it into the clinical work that I do more. Mm -hmm. And I think, for instance, it's helped me just be a little more courageous about about kind of going in with that. So for example, if a client's having problems with a family member and it's, you know, how it gets kind of caught up in all the, well, they said this and they do that and they're so blah, blah, blah. And and if you just occasionally just remind them like, this person's not going to live forever. What does that teach you about what you want out of this relationship and what's important. And it can just help people take a step back and to really shift their perspective around what matters. And I think sometimes it's important to do that, even though it takes a, it's a little bit of a provocative conversation that can take a little bit of courage, I think, to go there. It can also be really powerful. Mm -hmm. I'll do that with teens sometimes when I, when they're like in their senior year and they're going nuts with their parents. And I'll say, this is your last year for it ever to be this way again. Your mom's not going to make you dinner. (laughs) Right. Next year. And, you know, your dad's not going to do your laundry or whatever it is. And I think it can be, yeah, a bit of a reality check that everything is changing and everything that we love, we will lose. Yeah. And maybe that's something our listeners can think about is, you know, this time period that we're in is so unusual and it too will pass. And so what can you do to make meaning in your life right now, today, this week, this month? One of our sponsors is Praxis, which offers continuing education for 
therapists and mental health professionals. Praxis is a great way to do some online learning and you will be happy to hear that none other than Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, the co-founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and guest of the show, is doing an ACT immersion training online. It's a deep dive into acceptance and commitment therapy. He offers 10 modules and the registration is open now. So you'll want to be sure to check that out. You can get 24 hours of CEU credits. And I've heard from folks that this is a great training. So you should check it out. You can link to Praxis through our website. So go to offtheclockpsych.com to our sponsors page and you can find a link there. Another affiliate that we're really excited about is the dear Rick Hansen, whose book on neurodharma is coming out in the first week of May. We're super excited about it. And Yael and I have both shared about our personal experience of doing his online program on neurodharma. It's an eight-week program that I cannot recommend highly enough. It's saved me this last period of, of time. You can find out more about his Neurodharma program through our sponsorship page as well. And there is a $40 off code there. So make sure you go through our page, offtheclocksite.com, and get $40 off Neurodharma. Robin Walzer, welcome back to the podcast. So happy that you're here again. Thank you for inviting me again. I, I wanted to sort of set the stage for our listeners in your latest book, The Heart of Act, which is a wonderful book about doing ACT therapy in this powerful and effective way. You have a chapter called Engaged, Existence and Purpose. And to me, this chapter felt very important and meaningful and had a big influence on my clinical work. Some of the things that I maybe hadn't been thinking about um, came to mind, these big picture kind of issues about existence and purpose. So I'm really delighted that you came back on the show to talk to us about this idea and to delve into this topic a little bit. I think it's an important one. I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about existence and existentialism. It's probably one of my favorite topics. Well, why don't we start there? What do you mean by existentialism for people who might not be familiar with that topic? Sure. So existentialism is a philosophical approach to understanding humans or being. And essentially what it's about is the focus on responsibility and choice uh, that the human that humans being have. And that's because we're here and we're aware. So that consciousness uh, is pointed to inside of that philosophy. And essentially what people are being asked to do is choose, uh, that you are free and responsible. And so what will you create in your life with that uh, notion or that awareness? Well, and I, I am so appreciative that you connect the dots between existentialism and acceptance and commitment therapy and bring this sort of abstract philosophical idea into the room and into the day-to-day existence of people. And I think it is really meaningful and powerful. I just want to take a quick segue. Why is this so interesting and important to you? You just mentioned that this is one of your favorite things. What is it about this? Well, it's. I think that's a really great question. Uh, even as a younger student, when I was an undergraduate, I was interested in existentialism when I was working it or um, taking psychology courses and always thought it was really fascinating and when I got into graduate school, I actually did a uh, behavioral interpretation of existentialism as one of my comp exams. Uh, so I suppose that's more of the sort of academic answer about it. But I've also, you know, had to contact death myself. And I remember once as a young child, a, a gentleman that was living with our family, a friend of, of my parents, Vic Smith was his name he was hit by a train and on his motorcycle and it, it basically killed him, right? And I remember feeling uh, very, very upset by that experience and the thought of him not being around anymore. And what does that mean, somebody not being around anymore? And I was quite young. I was probably about six years old when that happened. And it is about six or seven when children start to wonder about death. And that has carried forward with me through to um, 
all the losses that I've experienced in my life is you know, what, what role does death play in our own lives? And each time I've touched death, and I write about this in the book, my mother's own death, and, you know, why didn't the world stop spinning when she died was sort of hit me quite hard because it didn't. It just kept going. Uh, and in that realizing it wasn't going to stop spinning for me either when I die and not going to stop spinning for anybody, indeed, um, reminding me that we're not special, that none of us are special, none of us will defeat death. And so if we can come up against that awareness and be connected to it, uh, then maybe tasting life will feel much more valuable and important. And uh, so that's my thought about just a personal take on it is I only have so much time here and I really love life. I, I really enjoy birds and flowers and nature and interacting with people. And I want to taste as much as I can because I, I realize that there will come a day when I will not be able to do that anymore. And I want that for the people that I work with as well. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that you focus on in that chapter in in the Heart of Act is encouraging therapists to help their clients be in contact with that sense of mortality. Um, I have a very good friend who has found this thing called a death meditation as a way to contact this sense because sometimes it's elusive, right? We don't always connect to that. Um, what do you think we there is to be learned by contacting mortality in this way? Well, I th one thing I think that we learn is that we don't, we can't create forever. And so quite often when people are uh, suffering or maybe even just living in general, they're waiting for something. They're waiting to feel better. They're waiting for the environment to change. They're waiting for somebody else to do something. And, you know, they're not really paying attention to the ticking of the clock and that and each moment you wait is how you are spending your life. You are responsible for that. And so there's a question here. Do you want to spend your life waiting? Waiting for something that may never arrive. You know, things like waiting to not feel anxious or waiting to not feel fear or waiting for happiness to arrive so that you can then have meaning. Uh, the tragedy there is that time is just ticking by and, you're actually creating your life and what would what I would call it is a life full of waiting. And so I, I wish for my clients and for other people, everyone I know, not to be there. That's a personal stance that I take. And did I did I actually answer your question, Deb? I'm yeah, sure. I mean well <laughs> I can relate to this. I think sometimes it feels like, oh, as soon as I catch up on all these things I need to get done, as soon as I have more resources, more money, more time, as soon as my kids are older, my job changes somehow. There's just all these things where it feels like, oh, and then I'll do all these things I really want to be doing. And so I think what you're saying is that by contacting the sense of the clock is ticking. We don't have forever. It brings us more into what can I do now? Precisely. What actions will I take today that are meaningful, engaged, alive, connected? Uh, what conscious choices will I make now rather than unconscious choices to wait? So uh, you know, hoping for something that's going to happen in the future. So I think helping our clients to get present to that doesn't have to be a morbid exploration. It can be very compassionate and thoughtful and be about touching into what it means to only be here for a period of time and to think about how you want to spend that time uh, ra rather than sort of whittling away at will I stop feeling something or will I uh, stop sensing something, and then I'll finally be able to live. I mean, as you know, uh, uh, Debbie, I work with folks who have post-traumatic stress disorder, and I can't count the number of clients that I've worked with who are waiting for their PTSD to go away. Like once this, I finally get this under control, I'll finally live. And these are folks who've been saying that for 30 years. Yeah. And 
the deal is, is that they have been living as just sort of a unconscious or captured living, an attached living to an idea rather than to the sense of their own freedom and their own responsibility. Yeah. Well, and I find sometimes that, that therapists, when I've talked to other therapists or trained other therapists, they are often, they worry a little bit about that death aspect, right? That it's going to be more, but it's going to be too provocative. But I think what you're saying is that it really points toward life. It's not really about the details of death. It's more about how do you want to live in the time that you have? It points toward values and day-to-day meaning. Precisely. So things like your friend's death meditation or things like in the act world, you know, we have the funeral exercise where you visit your own funeral. Those things, people get caught up in the death part of it rather than the looking at the other side of what do you want to create giving, given that death will happen. I don't think of it as a morbid exercise at all. I think of it as an awakening exercise that what we're helping our clients do is wake up to this notion that not a notion, even this reality that we, that we will pass one day and we don't know when that day will be. And you'll hear people do things like I contact this. I get it when somebody close to them dies because it puts you in touch with your own mortality but we lose that sense pretty quickly afterwards. And there might be some healthy things about that, but we should probably stay in touch with it to some degree and be conscious of it to some degree so that we can engage fully and uh, take responsibility for our lives in ways that are, we care about and bring meaning to us. I like that idea of the awakening. I think it pulls us out of sort of just going through the motions or the certain numbness that we can get into. So I've, I was talking to someone a while ago who said that he doesn't ever think about his own death, just never thinks about it. And that, to me, I was a little surprised by that because I think for me, it, you know, pops to mind from time to time. But I actually think that's the case for many people. It's just not on their radar. What do you think is going on there? Why do you think certain people might have difficulty with that or just might never occur to them? I'm a little terrified of my own death, frankly, so it kind of pops to mind sometimes in this scary way. Um, What do you think is going on there? Well, I think you're describing it uh, to some degree, not not for everyone, but for many people, it's terrifying to contact the idea of their own death. And so they simply just avoid it and uh, don't think about it. And I think that's part of it is it's too awful to recognize or too fearful uh, to, to contact. For others, it could be just a learning history where people didn't talk about it, but you can see, you know, like mass avoidance around it. I think as a culture, at least in our Western culture, you know, we're pretty afraid of it. And we, you know, are expected to get over it pretty quickly. We have ideas about death that are like cry for a bit and then move on. And, you know, I mean, I'm glad we have rituals and things like funerals and that sort of thing. It's helpful. But I think people are afraid to think about their own death in general, or maybe they just, it was never talked about and they don't in their family. And so it's just sort of a learning history that leaves them sort of separate from the idea of death. And I suppose uh, ultimately some of what you're talking about too points to other kinds of notions that have to do with religiosity or spirituality where people think that there is no death, so they don't worry about it either. That it's only a change in your state of being from being a live body to a spirit or an energy or an entity of some sort. And so that a fair number of people don't worry about death for that reason as well. It doesn't mean they're not afraid of death. It just means they don't dwell on it because they don't see it as a, a final aspect of life. Yeah, that's a good point. Depending on your view of what happens next, yeah, it makes it maybe it changes the the way that you think about it. Absolutely. So that extension that we have of in self as context and perspective taking, right? That we can extend ourselves into the future. 
I think can relieve in some ways that sense of death is if I can see myself, you know, far into the future and, and I know that I've been here long into the past, then you can get into a space of there is no end um, until, I mean, logically you can say, I know that one day I will die or something like that. But because of that extension, the capacity to extend ourselves into the future, I think sometimes it makes the illusion that we will not die or that somehow we will extend beyond ourselves. Yeah, there's something experiential about what you're talking about, because I think we all know logically, you're like, yes, there is going to be a death date at some point. We don't know when that is typically. But I think what you're talking about is just really experientially contacting that sense of mortality. How might people do that? What what are some ways that people can just bring that into sharper focus if they are having difficulty contacting, whether it's it's yourself or a, a client who's who's not contacting that? What what might people do? Well, I think some of the exercises that are in ACT are helpful. A death meditation, a visiting your own funeral, um, talking, just simply talking about your own passing can bring that um, to mind. And maybe talking with your with other people about it, like how many times in your life have, do you recall talking about your own death with somebody? Probably not very often. Yeah, maybe but occasionally, but not too, not too often. And it's probably the practicals, right? Like my will is here and my insurance policy is there and you know, people can do those kinds of things because it feels sort of practical and problem solving. We don't often talk about our fear of that space or whether or no fear or the fear that we have of how it will impact others and what will it mean for others. And even the notion that um, there will we will be remembered in some way for a period of time, but then we will cease to be remembered. Right. There, like there's a real kind of existential angst in there about meaninglessness. And is this life, is it meaningless? You know, will I be gone? And then shortly after being gone, I'll be fully gone. Like people won't even talk about me anymore. And I will be a gravesite somewhere that's not visited. Right. So because uh, that happens too, like even after people pass, we visit the gravesite for a while and some people are dedicated and committed, but as time passes, there's less and less visits and there's a, you know, thought about you now and then. And so there's, there's really sort of a painful process inside of exploring your own death. And again, I want to emphasize that it's not morbid. It's about knowing so that you can engage now. Like that consciousness is important. And since you're here anyway, you're here and you're conscious, you know you're here, what will you do? You can close down and shut down and hide and be afraid, or you can take risks and open up and taste life as much as possible. And I'm voting for the latter when I'm working with my clients because uh, I know that they can get so closed off and so afraid and rigid that life is just passing them by and they're like sitting in their homes or afraid to love or uh, afraid to create deep and meaningful uh, relationships. And if you think about parts of what existentialism is about, it's not just exist, it's exist authentically. Be here fully and authentically, making choices that are about meaning. And I can't think, as a, as a psychologist who's interested in the well-being of my clients, I just can't think of a more rich and colorful way to engage in life than from that space. I love that. And I, I just wanted to kind of explore something a little bit more that's embedded in what, what you said during the start of this coronavirus pandemic. I have a, a friend who said at that moment, we were sharing about how we were feeling and that in that moment, she was really connected with a sense of what's the point of anything. 
Like why, who cares? What's the point? And I think I've heard that sometimes in, in my clients as well, when, especially when they're very depressed, it's just the sense of purposelessness. So Robin, just imagine that you had a client who came in and, and was in that place where everything seems so pointless. How would you respond to that? Almost well, like an existential crisis, if you yeah, will. Yeah, no, let me just say, when clients ask that question, what's the point? It is my favorite question. And typically, people are like, oh, yeah, let me think about what to say here. But I love this question when clients ask it. And I, I'm like, yes, I'm so happy that you're asking this question. What is your point? What will your point be? What, will you, what point will you make? And so I want to, you know, pull, you know, pull it back in their direction and say, you know, you've got two feet and you can move them. Like, what direction do you want to put them in? I'm curious. I want to know about your point. And they'll say, well, it's pointless. It's meaningless. And I said, okay, I'll give that to you. Now what? Now what are you going to do? All right. So the next step you take is going to be with with a point to it. And so what point? I just, this, I love this question. So it doesn't throw me off when clients ask it. It doesn't sort of send me down the road of like scratching my head and wondering what to do. I, I just, let's explore it. What point will you make? You know, I love that because I think the pull is to like give them a point to say, oh, here's the point or to kind of try to convince them that there is a point. But I think you take more the stance of like, well, Maybe there isn't one. So now what? So what yeah. are you going to do? And it helps them sort of create create it for themselves because you're not trying to impose it yeah. on them. Well, and I'll often say, well, I, I can't wait to, let's answer the question. I can't wait to hear your answer, right? If, and if the audience could see me, they'd see me like rubbing my hands <laughs> together going, yeah, let's, okay, let's explore the point. Yeah, your face got excited. I see you on the video like you can't wait to dive in there and, and kind of grapple with that question. That's yeah. kind of the fun part, the juicy part of therapy. Exactly. Let's get that question on the table and see what choices you need to make uh, about creating a point. Because here's the thing. It, you know, when you, when you look at um, existentialism, uh, there's a, a meaning that Heidegger gives it. And let me just see if I can pronounce this right. So Heidegger says the individual is thy seen, and da means there, and seen means being. You're there and you're being. And so if that is the case, you're alive and you're conscious. It's not that we're going to undo that unless you're going to take your own life, which hopefully no client will do because there's so much colorfulness to um, see and be with in life. But if you're there and you're being and you're aware, then, then let's move. Let's do something. Let's create. Let's, and even in the time of COVID-19, you can see people doing things that are engaged, authentic, creating, and grateful. I mean, there's a lot of terrible things happening. But people are creating meaning by showing up to the hospital and taking care of COVID-19 uh, patients when they themselves could get sick. Um, people are at seven o'clock at night in New York City coming to their windows and clapping and blowing horns and playing music to say, I appreciate you. Uh, I care that you care. And I'm grateful for what you are doing. And there's people that are reaching out to each other across the world and meditating together and um, trying to think about how they can overcome in a way that is helpful and supports us. And I was just looking at a video yesterday about how fast we move in the world and how we've lived our lives. And we move through life so unconsciously. Like so many of us are moving through our lives just unconsciously day after day after day, the same sort of do this, do this, do this. And we're not asking what is meaningful. Like I am struck. I am struck by that. Now that isn't about authenticity and connection and aliveness. And, but we had to slow down. We had to be knocked off of our feet in order to make that visible again. 
we had to like have a death of busyness in a in able to wake up to what's available to us in the world and i think you know we can do this in therapy as well is you know wake up to what's visible and there to create uh, as we move forward and even in times of coronavirus and in fact it might even wake knock us off our feet enough to say hey we got to start living differently living more with awareness and less with being in the present moment and in the here and now and less in the future where am i going to be okay it's okay to plan and i'm i'm okay with you know the practicalities of thinking about what your future looks like but we spend way too much time in unconsciousness um or you know if people are you're not quite gleaning to that word unconsciousness and you know present moment or here and now however you want to say it yeah i mean i think often adverse life events of pandemic but it could be other you know it could be the loss of somebody or some other major life change often really is a way of contacting something about meaning and purpose because i think it takes us out of that day-to-day thing we get into where we're just not thinking on this scale and i think something about this just shakes us right out of our typical day-to-day concerns i can really relate to what you're saying all the stuff that i cared about two months ago all of a sudden it just doesn't feel that important anymore yeah in the yeah, grand scheme what of things important? yeah what is important to kind of emerge us out of that and i sometimes i say this to people that i'm consulting and maybe you've heard me say this uh, debbie is that for some folks you got to kind of rattle their cage a little bit to get them to wake up and sometimes contacting death does that and i think in the time of covid all of our cages have been rattled and i'm hopeful that we'll wake up a bit more and see what's important in the world i mean i'm i think about these kinds of things both at like in the room with my client who's sitting in front of me and what i'm hoping for them in terms of growth and meaning and um, uh, being responsible but I also want to see it at a much larger level, right? As a social, global kind of thing. Like, what what do we all need to wake up to in order to create meaning and engage in ways that are about not destroying that which is around us? Unconsciously destroying. Sorry, I should say unconsciously destroying. Yeah. Yeah. It's Patricia Carpus, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the things I loved about your chapter in your book about this is this sense of that sometimes we really do kind of have to go in there to this kind of question, which sometimes feels like you're going in deep or you're going in somewhere a little provocative with people, but that's a way to to contact this is to shake it up by just asking these kinds of questions that we might normally be a little bit reluctant to get into with people, but we have to find a way in. Well, and I think, you know, it's good to ask as a therapist, what is the reluctance about? What is the function of this reluctance? Because sometimes it's not that the client isn't willing to take a closer look. It's that the therapist is afraid to take a closer look. So, you know, in in my chapter, I talk a little bit about this where therapists will ask me, do I have to do that exercise on... Um, you know, the funeral exercise. And of course, the answer to that question is no. But I do want to know, why would you not do that particular one? And often it's just like, it just feels too much. It's too, what if I make my clients upset? What if I make my client feel bad? And I'm like, uh, is your client coming to see you because they're already in that place? And this is, again, awakening, not morbidity. And so i I think all bringing these questions in with your clients can be quite helpful. Now, it may not always be called for. There, you know, I'm not saying just do it with every client. You want to be thinking about, 
you know, what your client's needs are and, you know, how they're functioning in their lives. But I do think it's a, when you're looking at values in your sessions and how to work with people, helping them to bring their values to life and living uh, more from a values-based space from the feet up, not the head down, then an exploration of death seems part of that. I want to go back to this concept you talked about earlier related to, well, the ACT process is called selfish context, but it, it can also be looked at as taking this perspective shift or sort of stepping out of self story or self concept. I'll start with this quote that is something I kind of cobbled together from your book. It's kind of a string of quotes that I'm pulling together. Awareness of experience is dwarfed by small concerns and ongoing fears, by entanglement in worry and the past. Presence in the world is taken over by threats to our pride, our egos, or our concepts of ourselves. Part of the self as context work in ACT is about reaching beyond mind to pure consciousness by shedding over and again thoughts, desires, hopes, and dreams. It is the awareness of death that can assist this shift in perspective. As our consciousness stretches over time, we see change. We see the ongoing flow of life. It's beautiful. Oh. Yeah, Piece together a few. Um, can you explain this from the framework of ACT, this idea of self as context, and um, what do you mean by this perspective shift that you're, you're writing about here? Well, part of what I think happens for us and our clients is that we do get captured by ideas of ourselves or ideas about what we should be. So we're conceptualizing ourselves constantly. And I kind of chuckle a little bit when I think about how caught up we are in words. And there's a, sh a section in the book where I say, you know, the sun doesn't know that it shines and the earth doesn't know that it spins and the flower doesn't know that it's beautiful the bee doesn't know that it bumbles, right? Like all of these are conceptual language-based interactions with our environment that we've created. And so we do that same thing with ourselves and sort of get caught up in a sense of self and I and how we're defined and what we should have in order to be happy and content and what things should be like for us and then inside of that we start to suffer we get attached to our ideas of ourselves and we lose contact with that larger sense of self that can observe take perspective on all of the different aspects of ourselves including the words that we say like i am self those are only exist because we made them up um, they don't they don't literally exist, right? They're sounds that we say about ourselves. And you know, if we could sort of connect to this notion of being as something that's not just about words, about presence, uh, then it allows us to live more authentically, it allows us to live more in the here and now. It's not easy. I mean, minds are ever present and constantly talking to us and conceptualizing, but being able to see that we do that can free us and help us make it help us put us put us in a position where we can choose. So if I must be a certain thing or if I must be special or if I, uh, you know, have this idea about who I am, then I narrow my interaction with the world. I take away adaptability and variability and become rigid in who I can be. And clearly, since the world isn't like there to serve me, I'm going to suffer behind that if that's where I'm going to live. And so uh, what this piece is about is shedding again and again and again the attachment that we have to the ideas of ourselves so that we're more uh, flexible and able to adapt to the environment. It doesn't mean I don't have a purpose. It just means that I can keep my purpose intact from a values-based level, whatever the environment or context is. So I, I find in my experience that stepping out of that 
sense of self and getting that perspective shift is a bit fleeting. It's a bit hard to capture that. I think for most of us, we spend most of our day in that kind of self content. How would you recommend that people try to capture that a bit more? Like, what are some of the things you do with yourself, with your clients to get into that mode? Well, uh, I do think um, dropping into the here and now is going to be very important. Becoming aware. And you can do this through meditation, through mindfulness practice, but you can also do it just by showing up to what you're experiencing in the moment. It doesn't have to be I've got to sit on a pillow somewhere. It can also be I see this now. I'm aware here now of something that's right in front of me. You can do it if you're listening right in this moment, right? Right, and that's paying attention in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way you can build that muscle is through practice. And so, you know, there's sort of state awareness and trait awareness and we're often inviting our clients to practice state awareness where you do some kind of mindful process uh, where you you know listen to a, a meditation or something like that and that's great but throughout your day living consciously means I think slowing down and being aware more frequently even if you have to just like Use a bell to remind you, but show up more readily day to day and drop into what's happening in the here and now as a sort of ongoing process of awareness. And it takes practice. It's not easy. Minds capture us constantly. But as soon as you notice it, see if you can drop back into here now and be aware of what's around you. Take in what's around you. Take in how you feel and what you're experiencing. So you can be aware of the what's going on in the outer environment or the inner environment, whichever you want to turn your attention to. Um, you could do both, but the sort of process of I'm going to attend in this moment to, I'm going to observe in this moment what's here uh, versus living, you know, in what's there, or what's coming. And yeah. it just takes a, a steady practice is I, really what I would say. Yeah, this is all about shifting into that mode of being the observer of your own experience. And I think another piece of it that's really important is sort of observing your experience over time, that that you've been experiencing all of these, you know, different thoughts, emotions, interactions, etc. throughout the course of time. And that kind of allows you to separate yourself. Well, if you spend any amount of time in here and now, which is kind of a funny way to say that if you think about it. Right, Right, because we kind of (laughs) always are, but kind of not mentally. Time time disappears if you're in the here and now in a way, if that makes sense. There is no such thing as time. Like time doesn't know to keep itself, right? Like time isn't an entity, but we treat it like it is. And so in the moment, you can lose that time. But if you're sort of aware across time, what you will notice and what you're pointing to is that things are in motion. Emotions are in motion. Thoughts are in motion. Your body's in motion. The world's in motion. Like nothing is holding still. And this is where clients and ourselves get caught is that we think that this is going to last forever. Or I always feel this way. Or there's no way out. And collapsed inside of thoughts and experiences instead of, if you show up and just observe, you'll see the fluidness of all that we experience, that anxiety and sadness and joy and happiness, it all rises and falls, um, that nothing is static. And uh, that's a very important part of being conscious in the moment in terms of um, letting go of attachments to it. Everything rises and falls. Yes, that's right. Everything shifts constantly if you are able to look at it from that vantage point. Yeah. yeah. So what, tell us what you mean by the concept of compassionate immediacy and how can that perspective be helpful? Well, so I tie that to the notion of our own death because time is short. 
especially relatively speaking, sometimes when I get into these sort of philosophical modes and start thinking about how long the earth has been here and the universe, and then I think, oh, I might die when I'm 85 years old. So I was here for 85 years, which is probably not even a quark in time, right? Like when you think about size relative to time, it's such, just such a small period of time. And so there's that sort of broader part of it. And then there's also this notion, we don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know um, how death is going to meet us. And so it's precious. Time is precious. Um, and so I want to convey that in a kind of compassionate immediacy with clients. It's like, don't wait to make a change. Start today. Start now. Start immediately. Uh, but I want to do it with a sense of compassion for the difficulty of changing behavior and facing our fears and stepping towards things that we really care about and all of the stuff that that brings with it. But time is literally running out for everyone. And so uh, I want to put in this sort of don't wait quality in there. Like we were talking about earlier is this like do something now today that's about meaning for you and uh, about, um, creating the kind of life that you would would look back on and say, I was authentic, I was aware, I was engaged, I was loving, I was kind, whatever those things are that you find meaningful for you. And you could say, yeah, but it's all pointless. And I'd say, yeah, but what's your point, <laughs> right? I come mm -hmm. right back to that space. And what will you do about it today? That's that immediacy part. And I don't want to, you know, push it on somebody like, oh, you're going to die and you should get on it. It's more like be aware. And I want to come from a very gentle space. That's why it's compassionate. It's like time is running out and how will you spend it? Yeah, there's I think in the compassionate piece, there's this acknowledgement that this is not always easy to do. Right. And I also think there's something about looking at it in that way that actually to me makes the fear of death a little bit less because there's this sense of, okay, I lived while I could. Yeah. And I sort of did the best I could. And it wasn't always perfect, but at least I'm at peace with knowing that I kind of lived somewhat close to the, the life I wanted. So it almost gives you a less complicated feeling about your own death. I agree. And you, so you could sort of say, well, I, lived by waiting I waited for something to be different or I lived by doing I did the things that I wanted to do waiting is a kind of doing too by the way but uh, uh, it's um, it can the meaning can be sucked right out of uh, life in terms of what an individual might hope or want in there to be about Right. If presented with that choice, most of us probably wouldn't choose a life of waiting, but we sort of do <laughs> by behavior, you know, behaviorally by accident. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's that unconsciousness, right? That's that non-conscious living is uh, sort of caught in stories and content rather than seeing it and choosing being, being responsible and choosing, being able to respond. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, tell us a bit more about your stance about freedom and responsibility. Well, I might be um, on the far end in terms of thinking about more close to existentialism than what might some people might think about in acceptance and commitment therapy or that theoretical approach. Like, if we are conscious and aware, we are free to choose. And if we are free to choose, then we are responsible for our lives. Um, and every choice we make will have its consequence, of course, and our behavior will be shaped by those consequences. Um, we can respond to the rules in our head or the immediate contingencies. My hope is that we will live more in immediate contingency space. Um, but we we lose freedom when we collapse into content and 
it looks like we don't have a choice in those spaces. Like it feels like things have been taken away from us. It's not to say that there aren't practical limitations in the world. Can't simply choose to be rich and then do it, but you can work on it, right? You can always work on that if that's something that you want. And there's different ways to define rich. Rich might mean I'm in contact with nature and it's beautiful. And it might mean I have money. You define it, but you have the freedom you can, or another way to say it for um, uh, folks is we, we have a workaround in terms of the um, immediate contingencies of that is that we can construct contingencies in our head and move towards those constructed contingencies. Um, and we have a responsibility. We are able to respond in this moment. So when I think of freedom and responsibility, sort of way out on the end is that you are free and you are responsible. Some folks might not agree with me in that stance. And again, I want to emphasize that I know that there are practical limitations. Your environment does matter. Um, there are places that people live in, their homelessness, there's poverty, there's cultural kinds of um, rules about what we should do and how we should behave. And I still, inside of all of that, would never want to say, you don't have something that you can do. Something can always be done. The just question is, what move will you make next? What choice will you take? Yeah, yeah. That's a question to sort of ask over and over again each day. Of ourselves and our clients. Yeah, yeah. So a final question to wrap up here. Um, you know, we just have been talking a lot about building more meaning into our lives and just kind of contacting that sense of values and purpose as the clock is ticking. What are some of the ways that you encourage your clients to build more meaning into the, the everyday, the day-to-day -day life that they're living? So once we can clarify their meaning or their values, what they want to be about, what they want to create, then it's a question, what will you do each day? What behavioral thing will you do each day? It's not just a, I'm going to contact this with my head and think about it. It's what kind of thing will you, could you do on a daily basis that's about creating that thing? And meaning is available almost immediately. Like you and I could both walk away from this interview and go do something meaningful uh, that we've, that's values aligned and, and it's immediately available. And so um, I want to invite people to uh, each day be aware, be thought, be, be conscious and then pick. And just start doing little behaviors every day that grow that meaningful process. That's one way. And for some clients and for some people, it's like, I'm going to make a great big giant shift. I'm going to stop this thing that I've been doing and I'm going to go do something else that's meaningful and important to me. And I've had clients do that. And it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing this thing that I've been doing that really doesn't serve my purpose. Um, and so this, the question that you're asking isn't an easy one because it re requires both the practice of being conscious and choosing. So use like conscious and choosing, conscious and choosing as an ongoing process and that you'll find yourself falling away from it and that's part of the process and then you come back and you build this across time. Yeah, into a, a broader pattern. Yeah, and for listeners who are interested in in thinking more about that, I had I interviewed Dr. Jenna Lejeune yeah, a yeah. few months back, so you can check out her interview on value. She's a mutual friend of ours, and she wrote this wonderful book about book. values. Yeah, yeah, her book great. is wonderful, and she did a great interview all about this idea of just building meaning, and it's never perfect, right? But we're doing our best, and... Robin, I'd just like to thank you so much. I think it's so, even just talking about this with you is kind of helping me contact that sense a little bit of, of that kind of higher level of existence and consciousness and purpose. So I appreciate you sharing that with us today. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. And 
uh, my hope is that it uh, will impact all who listen in a way that empowers them to be free and choose um, a conscious uh, and aware engaged life. Wonderful. And and I'd encourage any therapists who are listening to check out your book, The Heart of Act, which is a, a lot of, more about how to bring these kind of ideas into your work as a therapist. So check it out. And Robin, thanks again. We're looking forward to having you back again sometime, our frequent, one of our most frequent guests. Well, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Take care, Robin. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldana and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.